it's crazy, like, actually taking the time to do actual research and not just go on <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> We're not reading Wikipedia articles to each other this week. <laughs> yeah. I pulled nothing from Wikipedia. I printed stuff. I print like I, I printed like all my stuff too. I highlighted it. I have notes in the margin. Very oh, interesting. Man. Yeah. Okay. Well, dear listeners, as you can tell by the intensity of feeling that is <laughs> emitting off of us, <laughs> this is our magnum opus. Really, our abortion episode. Probably going to be a two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about abortion. You know it. You love it. (laughs) We have found a lot of really interesting information and facts, stuff that even, uh, you know, Natalie and I are really passionate about this topic, and I learned a lot of new stuff that I wasn't aware of before, so looking forward to having this conversation, kind of sharing that information. So the reason that we decided to talk about this for Toxic Feminine Mystique this week was actually because of Britney Spears, <laughs> like most things. And <laughs> <Like> usual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think we can all agree that the most, I mean, the whole testimony that she just gave about the conservatorship, which did you know that she didn't know that that was going to be like publicized like the public was gonna hear her testimony i did not god yeah she's just like every right every human right she has has been violated yeah it's i mean thinking about britney from the you know like the intersection of like disability and also reproductive rights is really interesting and i think the most egregious part of her testimony is hearing that like she wants to have a baby and the conservatorship has basically mandated that she has an IUD in her body, um, which is preventing pregnancy. I mean, super fucked up. I mean, if you're aware of America, <laughs> reproductive justice in this country has been fucked up for quite some time. Um, but it, it didn't have to be this way. It really didn't. So Natalie and I are going to talk today about uh, the history of abortion in Iowa, as well as more recent court cases, things of that nature. And then our next episode, we'll be talking about how you can really arm yourself as a leftist, as a person who cares about reproductive autonomy when you're having conversations with other people about abortion and reproductive autonomy. And um, as people with uteruses, we, you know, this is very near and dear to us, this topic. You know, in my professional life, I've worked with a lot of women in kind of crisis situations where having the ability to get an abortion was something that they absolutely needed to do. And um, there were a lot of barriers for them to be able to do so. Uh, Even in this day and age (laughs) in (laughs) Iowa, um, the thing is women since they've been or any person really uh, who has been able to get pregnant since there have been pregnancies, there have been people seeking and getting abortions. That is just the nature of how it works. And so thinking about today when we do have access to safe ways to terminate a pregnancy, the people who have been in the more recent past who have been able to access abortion 
um, healthcare have been people who have the privilege to maybe take time off or they have the financial resources to pay for an abortion. An abortion is not cheap. It is not an inexpensive procedure. And as you can probably guess, folks who have little resources, um, people who have been discriminated against or have all these systemic barriers, they're not able to get the type of health care that rich, you know, routinely white ladies have uh, historically been able to access. So something that I think we we care about a lot. And uh, Natalie, you have even more professional expertise in this subject. I'll let you talk about that. Yeah. So I spent four years working at an abortion clinic, um, first as as a medical assistant, so working in direct patient care, um, and then as a sex educator when I went out into the community and educated people about um, reproductive health and their options. So I have a pretty, on the more scientific side, a pretty good understanding, and then as well as a lot of experience with anti-choice protesters and a lot of the tactics of like some of the the right to life freaks sickos yeah i like (laughs) to call uh my slutty phase i like to refer to myself as a sex educator at that point in my life (laughs) really doing the work in the community (laughs) so you're really coming from your lived experience um As a lady who enjoys sex and thinks, if you know, if you don't want to have sex, more power to you, but everyone should be able to have sex and have complete control over your fertility and whether or not you want a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that as socialists, we also believe that to be true. So not Mm -hmm. only as people with uteruses, but also in terms of economic justice, I do not believe that you can be a socialist and be anti-choice because if women are at any moment at risk of being knocked out of their social class with an unplanned pregnancy, then there's really no equality that exists for women. Um, or people with uteruses. So I, I truly believe that there is no world in which things can be equal where abortion is illegal or functionally illegal, as I think is what's going to be coming and is for many people. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I'm going to start us out with the Webster's, section, <laughs> Webster's definition of abortion. Uh, feminist icon, <laughs> Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's really important. I think the what we're really trying to do here is to help people understand the history and basic concepts about abortion and to better help people understand how to talk to their friends and family and how to advocate better for abortion rights and understand what people are talking about. Because a lot of times I think people, they're really intimidated by the idea of advocating for abortion rights or even talking to talking about it to people that they know. Mm-hmm. They're maybe supporters of abortion rights, but they clam up when it comes to talking about the details just because it's like really intimidating. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially I think like leftist men, it can be difficult for them to feel like they can dive into the conversation. So hopefully by arming you with more information and understanding of the concepts, you'll be, you know, better at talking about it. Some of it may be obvious, some not. But I hope that 
people can feel more prepared to go out and advocate after listening to us. This is your opportunity not to be just an ally, but to become an active accomplice. So we hope you'll take that invitation. (laughs) An accomplice in the murdering and sale of babies. (laughs) So our episode today is going to be, and the next one, are going to be a lot more structured than usual, but you'll return to freewheeling, like drinking White Claw and reading Wikipedia to each other after that. <laughs> yeah, that's not going anywhere. Um, no. This is just a, just a holiday from that. <laughs> okay, so abortion is the removal of a fetus or embryo from the uterus prior to the stage of viability. Um, so viability is defined as independent life outside of the uterus, sometimes using gestational age and sometimes using fetal weight. So that's usually possible around 23 or 24 weeks of gestation at the earliest. So it is not possible to abort a baby. If it is contents of the uterus, it is either an embryo or a fetus. So if people talk about a baby, they don't know what they're talking about, and you can, like, (laughs) thoroughly disregard them. So, Well, I heard in Webster's Dictionary. (laughs) So the word is fetus. You know, a fetus is the name um, when it's inside the uterus, and then anything that's, like, born or outside the uterus afterwards, you can call an infant or whatever it may be. So um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to define people talk about third trimester trimester abortions or late-term abortion. So this is an oxymoron because any termination of pregnancy after viability is not an abortion. So if a pregnancy is terminated at 8.5 months because of fetal anencephaly, which means that a a baby is born without a brain or is Mm -hmm. the fetus is lacking a brain, which happened to a friend of mine and she did get hauled out to speak on Iowa Public Radio when they were um, when they were considering the anti-abortion amendment, which you got to love that. Share your trauma. That's the thing. It's like we can talk about it too more in our next episode when we talk about like personal experiences. And I mean, sometimes those are the stories that the media seem to trot out. But it's like, how much torture porn of women do you need (laughs) before you believe, like, believe us? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So that would be an obstetric intervention, um, a labor induction, a hysterotomy. There are a number of terms for that. But an abortion cannot occur after viability. It's against the definition of abortion. And so that also means that late-term abortion is not a thing as well. So a full term means delivery after 260 to 294 days of pregnancy. So a late term would be towards 42 weeks. Um, And so that, you know, that's not possible because if a baby is at term, that means that they are past the point of viability and therefore it is no longer considered an abortion. So partial birth abortion is a thing that people bring up a lot. Um, It is fake. So (laughs) if you hear someone say partial birth abortion, you can also ignore them. I thought that was when the baby was born and alive and then they just they squished it so it was partially born (laughs) they pull an arm out and then saw off its head (laughs) yeah (laughs) they electrocute it it has to be really violent Uh, if you have a if you are squeamish or if you have a weak stomach this might not be the episode for you we should have done a, a trigger warning up at the top but we will be talking about 
<laughs> Murdering <laughs> fetuses. Squish, as much as squishing possible. babies. Yeah. Um, so basically there are two types of abortion. One is medication abortion, which means that you take a, a two-step series of medicines that is always done in an outpatient setting, and that is the most common form of abortion, and it is performed up to nine and a half weeks. The right to life people don't love to talk about that because it is one of the most safe medical procedures there is, and it's super easy. Mm -hmm. So that's medication abortion. And then surgical abortion is the other type, which um, can be done anytime up to that viability point. So there are two different types of surgical abortions. There's dilation and curatage, and and intact dilation and evacuation. It's just basically two methods of removing the contents of the uterus. So you're either dilating the cervix and scraping mm -hmm. out the contents within the uterus or pulling the contents of the uterus out and then removing it. So they really try to get into the weeds on that kind of stuff and like create terms like partial birth abortion to refer to one particular type of these procedures. But yeah. they're just it's just all surgical abortion and partial birth abortions are fake. So that's that. That's something that the right is really great at is mark like these marketing buzzwords or something like death tax, uh, <laughs> death panels, partial birth abortion. Things of that nature. They're geniuses in marketing. <laughs> They're geniuses. They're marketing geniuses. And I mean the term pro-life to begin with. Like the opposite yeah. is pro-death. Like, <laughs> Which we are, know. but. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Just yeah. not of infants. <laughs> um, and then the last one I want to talk about is an abortion reversal. Have you heard of this? No. So this is one of the big trap laws that has been circulating recently is the idea that you have to inform patients who receive a medication abortion of the possibility of an abortion reversal. Oh so what that is, is when you take the first abortion pill and mm. you don't take the second one and you take the first one and then they, the reversal is giving someone a massive shot of progesterone. This is unregulated, untested, it's dangerous, it's absolutely insane. So no doctor would ever do that. If you want to get the so-called abortion reversal, you have to go to a completely unregulated crisis pregnancy center. Of which there are many. <laughs> of which country. there are many. Um, so like, for instance, the Planned Parenthood in the Quad Cities had an abortion reversal center across the street, <laughs> which is a thing a lot of times those anti-choice clinics will do, which is they buy up space near Planned Parenthoods or whatever, you know, whatever other abortion clinics so that they can attempt to siphon people off before they realize that they're not going to an actual abortion clinic. So they'll advertise mm -hmm. abortion reversals there. But just know if you hear that, it is lawmakers attempting to tell doctors that that they have to imply that dangerous, untested procedures are somehow available and would be able to reverse an abortion, which is, you know, not possible. So a certain number of people who take the first one and not the second of the two pills will um, have a pregnancy that, you know, continues to carry on and then they would need to do a surgical abortion. So basically, it can sometimes seem like it's working just because the first pill is one of two mm -hmm. steps. And if you don't do both steps, it's, you know, might not complete. 
But this is untested. This is human experimentation. It's extremely disturbing and unethical. And if you hear people talking about that, that's what it is. So there's some basic terms so that everyone has an understanding of what we're talking about. Going to get into some legal terms later. But um, I will hand it over to Stella to talk about the history. Great. So most of what I'm about to share comes from a piece that was uh, published for the Iowa State Historical Society back in 1989. It was written by James C. Moore. Um, his name is C, like the initial <laughs> Moore, not C. Moore. Seymour Abortions. Yeah, that's almost sounds like a Bart Simpson like prank. Um, no, his name is James C. Moore, historian, academic, specializing in the history of U.S. healthcare, especially reproductive justice, and also a Civil War buff. If you look up his picture, you will note that he has a fantastic mustache and bow tie. <laughs> when we say dudes rock, we are we only mean this guy. Um, So his piece is called Iowa's Abortion Battles of the Late 1960s and Early 1970s Long-Term Perspectives and Short-Term Analyses And again, this came out in 89 I was super excited when I found this um, article Because it reads really well And there's a lot of really interesting stuff That I had never heard about before And then as we were preparing for this episode I was doing some more research And found out that Gavin Aronson Aronson. Friend of the pod, enemy of toxic feminine mystique. (laughs) Found out we were doing this episode and then traveled back in time two years to publish an article that heavily cites this source um, that we'll be citing very heavily. I'll just note that we are not journalists. You're here for our takes. So (laughs) we're just comedians. We're not journalists. You can't hold us to account. No. Um, but if uh, you like what you hear on Toxic Feminine Mystique this episode and you want to learn more, the article that he wrote for the Iowa Informer um, is a, a great resource as well um, without as much editorializing. And um, the question <laughs> that I kind of wanted to ask as we were getting this started was, and I didn't know the answer was, before Roe v. Wade in 73, 74, was abortion legal in Iowa? And the short answer is that it is complicated, like all things. (laughs) Um, And so before we kind of dive into this article, I just wanted to note really quickly, efforts to legalize abortions in Iowa repeatedly failed through 1973, and it was the United States Supreme Court, not the Iowa legislature, that overturned Iowa's 19th century anti-abortion statutes. Um, So the first session of the Iowa Territorial Legislature passed a general criminal code that contained language designed to permit the punishment of people who poisoned their fellow citizens. Among the poisons prescribed were abortifacients. Is that how you say that word? Abortifacients. Abortifacients. This is just like when I learned um, the word abolitionist from reading (laughs) and pronounced it abolistine for like two years. (laughs) All right. We don't have to spend too much time on that. Um, So among the poisons prescribed were abortifacients. That section of the original territorial code proved to be the first formal mention of abortion in Iowa law. 
When the Territorial Code was revised in 1843, the attempt to abort a pregnant woman by any means, not just by poisons, became criminal, but only if the attempt was made after quickening. Do you know that term, quickening? Yeah, it's when you can feel um, the fetus move. Yeah, it's such an old-fashioned kind of term, but yeah, so quickening was the first perception of fetal movement by the mother herself, and the legislators who drafted and passed these early statutes surely knew that quickening usually takes place near the midpoint of a normal gestation at the end of the fourth or the beginning of the fifth month of pregnancy. In adopting this policy, Iowa lawmakers were following long established precedent for the quickening doctrine had been in effect in American law, both common and statute since the founding of the Republic. So modern analysts might conclude from these early actions that Iowa policymakers have opposed abortion since territorial days. The argument would be true, but only to a very limited extent. Iowa lawmakers did not want apothecaries poisoning women, and they did not want anyone trying to induce abortions on women with fairly advanced pregnancies, partly because they believed that the potential for harm from an abortion increased with the length of the pregnancy. Which is true. Yeah, right? So it sounds like... At the time, apothecaries or pharmacies, like anyone could say they were a doctor, right? Like you could get cocaine (laughs) over the counter. So it was more to do with protecting women's lives than regulating whether they were carrying a pregnancy to term, it sounds like. Um, It would be equally true to conclude that Iowa policymakers during the territorial period were remarkably tolerant of abortion, provided it was undertaken early, since the territorial codes that made late abortions subject to indictments for manslaughter also, in a sense, reaffirmed the long-standing legality of abortions performed prior to quickening. Subsequent events support the second interpretation. The first of those was the enactment of Iowa's state code in 1851. That compilation dropped the criminal sanctions against late abortions, which had appeared in the territorial laws, and Iowa entered the Union without any statutory policies on the subject of abortion, hardly evidence of deep concern about the practice. The second revealing event was a court case known as Abrams v. Foshian Wife, 1857, <laughs> which sounds like like a crazy like play that you'd see like a community theater. <laughs> Uh, So the case was an action for slander. Mrs. Foshi was alleged to have publicly accused Mrs. Abrams of aborting herself. On appeal before the Iowa Supreme Court, attorneys for the Foshis concluded that an accusation like the one Mrs. Foshi made might injure a woman in the estimation of the community, but it was not formally slanderous. It was closer, they argued, to accusations that Mrs. Abrams was a common tattler or liar (laughs) (laughs) or that she indulged in the use of profane or vulgar language, (laughs) that she was a drunkard or the like. (laughs) And the Iowa Supreme Court agreed to accuse someone of practicing abortion was unpleasant but not slander, and the justices stated explicitly that abortion before quickening was no crime in Iowa. The Abrams decision was published in 1857, and the following year, a Keokuk physician, who was upset by this, wrote his state senator urging enactment of a law against feticide. The legislature complied, but in limited fashion. The 1858 Iowa abortion law made the administration of drugs or the use of instruments on any pregnant woman with the intent thereby to procure the miscarriage of any such woman a crime punishable by up to a year in jail and up to a $1,000 fine. But the word pregnant meant quickened, 
and the word intent made the crime virtually impossible to prove. Moreover, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled in 1863 that the 1858 statute could not be invoked against women who attempted to abort themselves by any means. It is clear to us from the wording of the 1858 law that it was the person who used the means with the pregnant woman to procure the abortion and not the woman herself that the legislature intended to punish. Irregular abortionists and local midwives who performed abortions could be harassed under the 1858 law, which is quite probably what the state's established physicians wanted in any event. But the state made clear that the women of Iowa themselves would not be indicted for actions they took to end unwanted pregnancies. The overall result of these early abortion-related laws and decisions created in Iowa a sort of benign neglect toward the practice. Abortions early in pregnancy were tolerated, and the practice was almost certainly widespread in the state by the 1860s. No Iowa-specific data exists from that era, but in the nation as a whole, the abortion rate probably rose to one abortion for every four or five pregnancies, which is really interesting, I think. That is really interesting. A special report on abortion presented to the Iowa State Medical Society in 1871 maintained that Iowa was keeping up with the nation in this respect, for abortion had become a significant means of family limitation throughout the state. People on the coast think we're so backwards, but (laughs) in the 1870s, we had a comparable abortion rate, so... Abortions performed after the midpoint of a pregnancy were technically illegal, but the crime was virtually impossible to prove and authorities made no apparent effort to enforce the letter of the law. When the General Assembly decided to revise the state code in 1873, legislators asked the Secretary of State to compile for them the last two years of criminal convictions in Iowa, complete with sentences, the types of persons involved, and similar information. That official did not report a single conviction for abortion during 1872 or 1873, nor did the new code alter the state's abortion policy. So very much like a, it, it's permissible, it's tolerated, and it's it's super interesting to me too. Like we talk about the language of around pregnancy and abortion and the fact that quickening had to occur before it was even considered remotely a crime. Right. And I, that's the like a lot of the religious language yeah. as well. Like they don't perceive the soul as having entered the body of the fetus till quickening. Mm-hmm. So James Moore, he has a lot of interesting um, asides around how or I guess well, we'll get into it. Justin, cut out everything I just said and start here. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere in the nation, organized physicians operating under the banners of the AMA and state medical societies pushed during the 1870s for an abandonment of the ancient quickening doctrine and for new statutes that would make abortion at any time during pregnancy a crime. These anti-abortion physicians were remarkably successful in most states, but made little headway in the Iowa legislature. They won a major victory in the courts, however, in 1878, when the Iowa Supreme Court upheld a conviction under the 1873 code for an abortion performed prior to quickening, this decision, known as State versus Fitzgerald, introduced in Iowa the policy that legislative pressure had produced elsewhere. To attempt to abort a woman at any point in gestation would henceforth be an act liable to criminal prosecution in Iowa. Four years later, in 1882, the medical establishment, as if to emphasize the new policy, spearheaded a successful effort in the General Assembly to lengthen the possible sentence for performing an abortion from one to five years. In 1886, the Iowa Supreme Court sustained the principle that death resulting from an abortion would be treated as second-degree murder. 
This ruling would remain in effect in Iowa through the first half of the 20th century, which placed the state in the middle of national trends. We're average. (laughs) It is important to point out that um, anyone could be a doctor at this point, (laughs) and they were (laughs) basically like your barber was more trustworthy than... yes. I mean, they are going in there, like, refusing to wash their hands and sticking their hands up your (laughs) hoo-ha. They used to wear black because they were, when they made house calls, because they were covered in so many bodily fluids. That's why they wear white today. (laughs) So you can kind of see where they've been. (laughs) It was just basically whoever wanted to be a doctor could call themselves a doctor and come sell you stuff. So I wouldn't say that, you know, any professional medical group from the 1800s is to be um, given much much credit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely hitting on a really important and, and interesting point. And that's Professor Moore says that the reason that physicians who are really don't have very much credibility as a profession are coming out against abortion is because it's typically midwives and other types of people who are administering them. Um, But then we'll see later on in the 50s and 60s when doctors are well-respected, well-regarded, that's when they think that, well, a a woman's decision to have an abortion should be between her and her doctor. And that's when, as a profession, they really start to advocate for uh, legalization and more permissibility around abortion. That's so interesting. I never thought of the like between, you know, a woman and her, and her doctor language, but yeah, those self serving really point. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And there's absolutely no reason why a midwife or nurse practitioner shouldn't at the very least be able to oversee a medication and abortion. It's one of the safest possible procedures that a human mm-hmm. being can undergo. Much safer than pregnancy. <laughs> Oh my goodness, much safer than pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think there's similar stuff around like formula and, you know, there's, yeah. you know, sorry, go ahead. So anyway, if, if you basically, if you are seeking an abortion and someone helps you get it and you die, that is second degree murder. According to the Iowa Supreme Court, um, as of 1886, this ruling would remain in effect in Iowa throughout the first half of the 20th century, which placed the state in the middle of national trends. So this was a pretty common policy state to state. 50 years later, in 1936, 11 states would be punishing abortion-related deaths more severely, 20 would be punishing them less, less severely, and 15 would be treating them just as Iowa did. Finally, in 1915, the word pregnant was dropped from the abortion section of the criminal code, and with it went all ambiguity about the question of quickening a formal, if somewhat belated, recognition that Iowa law had changed from our territorial days. Even with the dramatic legal shifts of the late 19th century, substantial evidence suggests that abortion remained a reasonably widespread practice in Iowa, just as it did in other states, criminal statutes notwithstanding. Court records from the turn of the century indicated the existence of sanitariums where various operators, including some trained doctors, performed abortions on a regular and quite openly business-like basis. The most famous abortionist in Des Moines, Carrie Rowley, practiced from the teens through the 1930s. In 1933, she claimed that she would be rich if she had been paid for all the abortions she had performed, (laughs) that she produced abortions to save disgraced girls, and that she was glad to do it. 
if I had a nickel for every abortion <laughs> I did. <laughs> Hell yeah, queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love it. She was just in it for the love of the game. <laughs> Uh, as a rule, even people like Rowley, who is not a trained or licensed physician, just a badass, encounter the authorities <laughs> only when a patient died. So don't let your patients die. <laughs> the best figures on abortion rates in Iowa, specifically during the first three decades of the 20th century, were amassed by E.D. Ploss in 1931. He was a physician who wanted to find out whether abortion was as common in rural areas as it was in urban areas. And this, I think, is really cute. Professor Moore says, fortunately, for present purposes. He's talking about his own article. So cute. (laughs) Fortunately for me, he decided to look at Iowa. (laughs) Oh, man. No one at us if he, like, is a monster because I need him to remain. (laughs) Just an academic, big bow tie, big mustache, big interest in the Civil War and abortion. (laughs) Love this guy. Altogether... They had overseen approximately 51,000 deliveries. They also reported seeing over 6,600 induced abortions, at least 90% of which were technically criminal. A few were therapeutic and hence legal under a ruling that allowed abortion to save the life of the mother. More than half of the doctors surveyed saw those rates as holding steady in Iowa. 27% thought the incidence of abortion was rising as the Great Depression set in. Which makes sense. Right. People can't afford their babies. Mm-hmm. And um, since Roe Ro v. Wade, we do have more dependable data around how many abortions are performed by healthcare professionals in Iowa and many other states. And those are really interesting statistics, too. You can almost see when the recession started, <laughs> you know, uh, when abortion rates would go up, which is sad. Uh, Moreover, the Iowa doctors considered their uh, figures conservative because they simply did not see the large number of auto-abortions and midwife abortions that progressed perfectly well and required no physician's aid or intervention. So there's a lot of abortions happening. Some are by doctors. Many others are not. Decisions of the Iowa Supreme Court through the same period further confused the legal status of abortion in the state. While the court remained firm on the issue of abortion-related deaths, it made the crime of abortion itself, as distinguished from actions arising from abortion-related deaths, difficult to prove. Between 1899 and 1928, a series of rulings made clear that the death or even the presumed death of an unborn fetus was considered a threat to the life of the woman carrying it and therefore justified an abortion, that anyone could attempt an abortion as long as the life of the woman appeared to be at stake, and most importantly, that the state had the burden of proof to demonstrate the abortion was not necessary. So these rulings help explain why people performing abortions in Iowa rarely encountered the authorities unless a patient died. Even then, conviction was difficult if the practitioner was a licensed physician. The state's attorneys general from 1927 through 1932 reported only one indictment in Iowa for violation of the state's anti-abortion statute. Neighboring Minnesota, by comparison, where anti-abortion statutes were more continuously and aggressively enforced by state authorities, brought 100 indictments which resulted in 31 convictions in the period from 1911 to 1930. Thus, following a century of somewhat contradictory legal activity on the subject of abortion, Iowa emerged from World War II, facing a situation common to almost all of the other states as well. Abortion was formally illegal, 
though quite widely practiced in a semi-clandestine fashion and quite rarely prosecuted. As interpreted by the courts, Iowa's anti-abortion statutes functioned as something akin to malpractice indictments in advance. If bona fide physicians were willing, for whatever reasons, to undertake occasional discreet abortions, they could probably do so with impunity. Even non-physicians and pregnant women themselves could try to induce abortions and seldom risk punishment, provided that it went okay. (laughs) But if the procedure was botched, and especially if a woman died as a result of an attempted abortion, hard questions would have to be answered, and stiff penalties from the state courts were likely. So, early in the 1950s, the Iowa Supreme Court sent a signal that this paradoxical and inconsistent situation might no longer be so lightly tolerated. Dr. J.A. Snyder, an elderly physician from Rowland, Iowa, was indicted for violation of the abortion statutes, even though all the procedures he was accused of performing went well. The prosecutor who brought the indictment had assembled 15 women who were willing to testify that they had received abortions from Dr. Snyder during 1950 and 1951. The local judge refused to grant the witnesses immunity, all but one of them withdrew. Cowards! (laughs) (laughs) On the testimony of the lone remaining woman, however, Dr. Snyder was convicted. On appeal in 1953, the Iowa Supreme Court upheld the conviction, notwithstanding the fact that Snyder had been a duly licensed physician in the state for more than 40 years. Because he had the woman return to his office after dark, and because he did not give her a general physical examination, the court reasoned that he was merely providing an abortion and was not really concerned about her health, much less fearful for her life. So he didn't quite (laughs) have enough plausible (laughs) deniability. (laughs) Delivered in a climate of conservative politics and in a period of resurgent domesticity, the decision presaged an era when abortions might become difficult to obtain, even for sophisticated women with access to friendly and well-paid physicians, let alone for poor or desperate women. Right? Like, we see this nuclear family kind of uh, very traditional gender roles occurring in the 50s. While legal authorities moved during the 1950s to resolve the inconsistencies in Iowa's abortion policy by stepping up enforcement of the letter of the law, other people in the state were beginning to consider resolving the inconsistencies not by enforcing the law more vigorously, but by redrafting it. The advocates of change in Iowa and elsewhere held many different views through the late 1950s and early 1960s, but most agreed by the middle of the latter decade that abortions performed early in pregnancy by competent physicians for reasons they deem physically or mentally appropriate should no longer be prescribed as criminal acts. In the General Assembly of 1967, State Senator John M. Ely Jr. of Cedar Rapids introduced a bill that would have brought about such a change. So his bill, the first formal legislative proposal of its sort in Iowa in over a century, eventually expired, but it proved in retrospect to be the opening round of what would become, from 1969 through 1973, one of the most tumultuous and emotional battles in Iowa political history. And then Roe v. Wade passed, so it was all forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) The General Assembly did not meet in 1968, but in 1969, the advocates of abortion reform returned to Des Moines stronger than ever before and determined to alter Iowa policy. 
Senator Minette Doderer of Iowa City and Representative Richard Rattle of Lane County submitted liberalizing proposals, but legislative activity in 1969 centered on a bill that emerged from the Senate Committee on Social Services. That committee bill brought to the fore a Cedar Falls Republican, W. Charlene Conklin, who quickly became a key figure in the struggles of the early 1970s. Conklin did not like the 1969 committee draft for a host of substantive and procedural reasons and helped defeat it. But she announced her intent to submit a proposal of her own in 1970, which she did, and she became, in some sense, the legislative point person for Iowa abortion reform. The General Assembly debated and defeated efforts to liberalize Iowa abortion policy in 1970 and 71. In both years, the battles were bitter and closely contested. Following the respite of 1972, the General Assembly reconvened in January 1973. Many observers believed that the advocates of liberalization were on the brink of success at the state level, for they had made significant gains in each of the previous years. Hardly had the battle been re-engaged, however, when the decision of the United States Supreme Court in the case of Roe v. Wade in 1973 summarily ended the struggle. Ironically, that decision gave advocates of reform at the state level a victory they had not yet been able to win in the Iowa legislature. But it sounds like it was really going that way. That's awesome. And ironically, I think that women would have been better off if it had gone that way. Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate that the courts are not the way to do this. um, And it's not the way to guarantee true, you know, equality from women under the law. As we'll find out, the courts agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) The battles that raged in the Iowa legislature in the late 1960s raised for us 20 years later, this is Professor Moore writing in 1989, and me, Stella, talking to you, Natalie, in 2021, (laughs) a host of intriguing historical issues. Why had so many Iowans, after a century of living with paradox, inconsistency, and benevolent neglect, decide that they would like to formally alter the laws prescribing abortion? Why did so many other Iowans rise to such passionate and politically powerful defense of the state laws when most of their fellow citizens for a hundred years had apparently paid little or no attention to this policy one way or the other? Why indeed? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Moore identifies four broad factors that energize the proponents of liberalization. So these are the people who want abortion to be more readily available. What would you guess if you had to guess maybe one or up to four, I suppose? (laughs) Four things that energized people. So after, um, you know, since Iowa was a territory and then until the late 60s, early 70s, what are some reasons that you think people would suddenly want to change the laws so that abortion was legal and more permissible? I don't know. Let me know. So the first reason was a growing national concern about overpopulation. Oh, great. We love that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Is there going to be some civil rights things, too? Yeah. So overpopulation is definitely a racist dog whistle. Absolutely. It's um, something that eugenicists have touted for a long time. It's it's a bullshit kind of argument. Yeah. Also, at this time, there were 2.8 million Iowans, and now today I think there's like 3 point some million Iowans, and there's plenty of room here. If you've ever been to (laughs) Iowa, we could fit a lot more people. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, when people say overpopulation, they, you know, you know what kind of people they think shouldn't be reproducing. <laughs> The administration of President Lyndon Johnson, which spanned the middle years of the 60s, was the first one to spend substantial amounts of federal money on programs of fertility control. Iowans clearly shared the national concern about overpopulation. Richard Rattle, who had co-sponsored one of the unsuccessful abortion liberalization bills in 1969, had stressed the threats of overpopulation. All of our current environmental problems are closely related to the issue of overpopulation. Iowans had to enact meaningful legislation on subjects like abortion in order to keep ourselves from being inundated. (laughs) Other people's babies, as Steve (laughs) King would say. Yeah, exactly. The question of population was so closely linked to the question of abortion in Iowa that the Des Moines Register's most famous and most often cited Iowa poll on abortion, um, which came out in 19, January 1971, revealed a clear majority in the state for abortion liberalization, asked people whether they thought the legislature should also set legal limits on family size. Oh, <laughs> More telling still was the response of Iowa citizens to abortion-related appeals from population control groups. In February 1971, the Black Hawk chapter of Zero Population Growth ran a piece in the Waterloo Courier urging citizens to support abortion reform for population reasons. The announcement contained a section that readers were to clip out, fill in, and send to their state legislator. (laughs) I like that. Some newsprint uh, democracy happening. (laughs) The positive response generated by this ad was the largest of its sort in the Conklin Papers, clear evidence that appeals for a liberal abortion policy in the context of concern for overpopulation had substantial impact at the grassroots level in Iowa. Equally telling were the frequent allusions to population concerns expressed in hundreds of letters to other legislative supporters of abortion reform. Earl M. Willits, a careful and almost scholarly state legislator from Ankeny, Skankeny, <laughs> careful and sc- almost scholarly. <laughs> oh, Professor Moore. Almost. <laughs> what would he have to do to be scholarly? <laughs> He eventually concluded that population control was one of the two most important reasons why so many Iowans favored legalization or re-legalization, as it were, of abortion by 1970. Um, No wonder when he received letters like the following, which you can read in State Historical Archives, I believe. As young Catholics, both my wife and I believe the church's stand against abortion is not in keeping with the times. We are concerned with the population problem and think each child brought into the world should be wanted and planned for. A second factor that proved important both in the nation as a whole and in the state of Iowa in particular was related to perceptions of fairness. The poor and the unsophisticated had a much harder time obtaining abortions under the old system of benign neglect than did the wealthy and the well-connected. This inequity appears to have influenced several prominent groups around the state, especially social workers and mission-oriented clergy. Fairness was also an important issue in the decision of the Iowa YWCA to support repeal of the old law, a decision the YWCA reached as early as 1966. 
The Iowa Conference of the United Church of Christ urged all of its pastors to favor repeal of the state's anti-abortion law, in part because the rich and middle class can terminate a pregnancy safely, legally or illegally, because they can afford to pay for it, while pregnancy termination is not readily available to the poor because of its cost, introducing another form of discrimination. Abortions were expensive. Dr. Snyder, the man whose conviction in 1953 had signaled the possibility of stronger enforcement of the law, was charging his patients $50 in 1950, which was a substantial sum indeed. I looked up how much this would cost in today's dollars in 2021, and that was $560 a pop. Oh, it's more now. Abortion. Is it really? Yeah, it's around $700 for a medication abortion and around $1,100 for a surgical abortion. That's something I don't think people realize. I, For some reason, I think the last time I looked into it, it it seemed comparable to that. That is, I mean, absolutely a barrier. (laughs) Like, how if you can't afford an abortion, how are you gonna afford raising a child you know like (laughs) yeah yeah and on top of that private insurance usually covers it but medicaid cannot yeah so it's like out of pocket rich women aren't even paying anything (laughs) so fucked up so fucked up Another group that kind of had a dog in the fight was Iowa college students that were also sensitive to this question around fairness and access. The student government in Iowa City raised conservative hackles in the fall semester of 1971 by voting funds for abortion counseling and abortion services to students who could not afford them. Then their actions were overruled by university authorities under pressure from Des Moines. So the students created a special loan fund for the same purpose. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah. Those activist college students. Yeah, hell yeah. Similar um, concerns were expressed and similar conversations were happening at Drake University, Iowa State, and UNI. The inequities of the old system played an important role in forcing the issue before the legislature. So the third factor was medical opinion. So this proved to be a third critical factor in precipitating the abortion debate 20 years ago, or, um, gosh, (laughs) I always feel like whenever I try to do math, that it's the year 2000, and I count back from that. (laughs) Um, I guess we're 50 years out from it today, but. During the 1950s, just as the state's anti-abortion laws began to be more vigorously enforced, even against physicians, medical statisticians, statisticians, (laughs) 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 medical statisticians demonstrated that abortions had actually become safer for pregnant women than going full term and bearing a child. Though no one, of course, was prepared to argue that all pregnant women should therefore be required to undergo abortions to protect their health. I mean, I I mean, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, but I, I mean, what's the safe choice? Like <laughs> these figures undermined the female safety justifications that had once proved important to 19th century legislators and jurists. That I think is one of the most interesting parts. Like when Iowa was a territory, the idea was like the later in your pregnancy you go, it's less safe for you to have an abortion at that time. So that's why we don't want to allow it. But then in the 50s, it's actually safer to have an abortion early. Like the argument that women are safer going to full term with their pregnancy and and having the child at that point is no longer like a, a thing. Or like they realize that it's much more dangerous to 
not have an abortion at that time. Does that make Correct. sense the way I said that? <laughs> I get what you're saying of like the, you know, trying to have a cake and eat it too. And like the evolution of the idea of women's safety related to abortion. Like it used yep. to be that we um, were regulating abortions because they were unsafe. And now it's like they're safer than giving birth. But we exactly. are right. We have to provide alternative justifications because it was always just bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> More crucial still was a dramatic shift in medical opinion that became manifest during the 60s. Physicians were no longer defensive members of a struggling profession looking to the state to prosecute their competitors like midwives. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, they were at the height of their power and prepared to assert their right to make sensitive and tolerant decisions without the state looking over their shoulders. To put it crassly, oh, please do, Professor Moore. (laughs) (laughs) Now that they had finally cornered the medical market, physicians sought to reduce the market's restrictions. To put it less (laughs) crassly, physicians went public with their desire for a nearly absolute degree of flexibility in providing what they thought, not what the state thought, their patients wanted or needed. The decision to have or not have an abortion, they believe, should be made in a private medical context. By 1967, according to a survey conducted by Modern Medicine magazine, 87% of all American physicians favored more permissive abortion laws than prevailed in their states. It's not possible to determine whether that figure would have held steady in Iowa specifically, but there is no question that Iowa physicians played a major role in the drive to alter their state's abortion statutes. Physicians worked hard to change Iowa abortion laws during the six years of open struggle between 1967 and 1973. And then um, in his article, he talks a lot about all of the different private practice groups and doctors groups, all this evidence basically that they were petitioning the state and um, urging for legal abortions, especially when amniocentesis indicated abnormality. And so then the fourth major factor what possibly could have turned the tide on the abortion debate in Iowa in the late 1960s and early 1970s? <laughs> Why, it was the women themselves. Hey. <laughs> it was the women's movement. Not as important as the other stuff, but certainly <laughs> a, a factor. <laughs> At the grassroots level, abortion became a quintessentially women's issue, perhaps the quintessentially women's issue in Iowa for the period 1967 to 1973. During the late 60s and early 70s, a large proportion of the letters written to legislators in Des Moines urging reconsideration of the state's abortion policies were written by women. Professor Moore says, this phenomenon was really quite astonishing. And then he, like, takes, he, like, <laughs> takes a drag on his pipe, and then he, like... <laughs> Puts on a jacket with, like, the little elbow patches. <laughs> it is hard to imagine that any issue in Iowa history to that point had ever generated either more letters to state legislators specifically from women or a higher percentage of letters from women than did the abortion issue. Taken together, those letters constitute a rich source of social history for future researchers because many of the women who wrote their state legislators poured out private stories in great detail. They told Charlene Conklin things they had never dared to tell even their husbands. And then women's organizations were really seizing on this issue. The Iowa YWCA took an overtly feminist position in favor of reform. One of the imperatives for action in the 1970 to 73 period is to revolutionize society's expectations of women and their own self-perception. Therefore, we must 
undertake intentional actions which will support in public policy the greater liberation of women. Among these actions, we will give special emphasis to the repeal of all laws restricting or prohibiting abortions performed by a duly licensed physician. And then there's a lot of other groups that Professor Moore notes were part of this fight, right? So women's social clubs, as well as organizations for the educational advancement of women or allowing women uh, more representation in colleges, as well as some religious organizations as well. Also influential were the actions of women in political life. Governor Robert Ray appointed a special commission on the status of women in 1969. And from 1970 through 73, the commission endorsed abortion reform in no uncertain terms. When the commission issued its first formal report in May 1970, a majority of the commissioners believed that the state's abortion laws were antiquated and restrictive. The principle that should guide legislative action, according to this commission, was the idea that a woman is a free being and as such has a right to control her own life, her own property, and her own physical being. Yeah, hell yeah. (laughs) I like that there was like a a special commission on the status of women. (laughs) Robert Ray was our good governor. (laughs) A Republican. my Robert Ray heads out there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Little Robert Ray of sunshine. Yeah. On the status of women. In December 1972, the commission reiterated its strong stand with only one vote opposed. That of a nun who sat on the commission. (laughs) (laughs) A traitor in our midst. (laughs) A wolf in sheep's clothing. (laughs) Or in a habit. (laughs) During the legislative session of 73, the Iowa Women's Commission was pressing actively for repeal when the Roe decision intervened. Around the state, women organized petition drives in favor of liberal abortion laws. Okay, you're going to love this part. This is my favorite part. One of my favorite parts. Women delegates and committee women in the Democratic and Republican parties helped push the abortion issue into the open. Both parties adopted platform planks supporting abortion reform. The Republican resolution was the stronger of the two, asserting that the decision to terminate a pregnancy is a matter of conscience and health, not of law. Laws are appropriate in this area only to assure proper safeguard for such procedures. We recommend Iowa's laws be revised to acknowledge these facts. I mean, that's consistent with the stuff I'm going to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you you heard it here, folks. The Democratic Party has always been a bunch of mealy... Chicken shit. <laughs> yeah, feckless, spineless assholes. So the Democratic resolution likewise recognized the decision as one of conscience involving a woman and her physician, but hedged with a statement that the highly personal and nonpartisan nation, nature of the issue will not permit universal acceptance of the liberal position. So they're like, well, we would love to make it legal, but... (laughs) And this was because the Iowa Democratic Party had a very vocal and strong Catholic core, which I wasn't aware of. I believe it. So it really sounds like this was a a tumultuous period and efforts to re-legalize abortions in Iowa after kind of being tolerated and then no longer in the 50s. There were a lot of efforts to liberalize the laws or at least reform them in, in some meaningful way. And they failed all the way through 1973. And that's when the United States Supreme Court, not the Iowa legislature, overturned the state's 19th century anti-abortion statutes. So who were the people who were 
really fighting against, we've talked a little bit about the people who were for reform and for liberalization, but who are the people against it? Catholics. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the thing I've learned with like my historical research is that <laughs> the, the Catholics have been pretty staunch about this forever. Yeah, yeah. It's Catholics and also people who they have these assumptions that are either religious, Catholic, or scientific that human life begins at conception. And so there's like this very sort of moral question around when life begins and and all of that. So Catholic parishes in Iowa took the early lead in defending the state's already existing anti-abortion policies against the forces of repeal and reform. The first public efforts at liberalization were countered with massive letter writing and telegram sending campaigns from Catholics. Hundreds and hundreds of those <laughs> letters. <campaigns. Yeah. laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing I just realized of like the philosophical contemplation of when life begins mm-hmm. didn't exist like in the 1800s that question didn't come to weigh in on anything because there weren't pregnancy tests this early mm, yeah. so like you know the question of like does it begin at conception does it not it's like well but you wouldn't no one would figure out that you were pregnant until quickening mm-hmm. I mean your period stops but there are, that happens all the time yeah so kind of interesting that it's like actually advances in medical science that have led us to have this. Absolutely. But in addition to to these groups of people, there are a lot of broader societal, social, and political concerns that are also really at play here. So concerns about the fundamental tone of what life would be like in the future and how men and women, but especially women, would relate to the new world ahead. Ultimately, the abortion battle was about where American society seemed to be headed. The abortion battle did not emerge from a contextual vacuum, but from a decade that included civil rights, affirmative action, urban rioting, cities burning, much talk about perpetual welfare and fatherless families, national leaders being assassinated, a terrifying surge in the use of illegal drugs and chemicals, the free speech movement on college campuses, draft resistance, bitter debates, especially in Iowa, over the righteousness of the Vietnam War, and similarly unsettling developments. Many of the people who wrote their state legislators saw in the drive to liberalize abortion a sort of symbolic last straw. Some lines had to be drawn somewhere. (laughs) And abortion, an issue that could be presented in clear-cut life-and-death terms, seemed to be the place to draw one. So it really becomes like this cultural like bellwether, basically, or, or signifier. If the state permitted abortion on demand, as the opponents of liberalization put it, Even the sanctity of motherhood might disappear. The basic idea of the family would be undermined, and with it might go all traditional social values. In a decade of near-revolutionary change, many Iowa women clung to the bedrock of traditional reproductive arrangements. As a woman from Esterville put it to Senator Conklin, from the small cell of the family to the complex organization of the society, women play a basic role. Where is your womanly dignity? (laughs) The same feminism that galvanized unprecedented numbers of Iowa women into the movement to liberalize the state's abortion laws drove others to fear for their own futures and for the future of society. Without traditional values, argued another woman, men will get ideas of abusing women. Oh, yeah, because they didn't do that before. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They invented spousal abuse (laughs) when they they passed Roe v. Wade. (laughs) It was invented then, yes. (laughs) 
their own male responsibilities would be stripped by the proposed laws. A couple from Iowa City saw the feminist issue of autonomy as unrealistic. (laughs) In the abstract, man or woman has an absolute right over their body and its life. However, in the practical order of civilized societal living, this right has been modified by human laws throughout the ages. Modern woman must still reside in our society, and she needs to modify her right over her body for the good of the group, the same as everyone else. (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. Like, we grew up with, you know, contraceptive options and birth control, like the pill just being something that, like, it's absolutely... You cannot undervalue the societal impact that giving women the ability to (laughs) prevent pregnancy really had on everything, every element. And it really freaks some people out. (laughs) In the words of the sociologist Kristen Luker, the abortion debate that broke out in the 60s was in large part about women's contrasting obligations to themselves and others, a referendum on the place and meaning of motherhood. In this respect, there was a striking parallel between the abortion battles of the late 60s and early 70s on the one hand and a similarly searing issue of the 19th century, slavery in the territories. The parallel was not one of substance, but one of cultural and political process. Slavery in the territories was an inherently important issue in and of itself, just as abortion was. But slavery in the territories per se did not by itself provoke guerrilla warfare in Kansas or bring about a revolution in the political party structure of the nation. Instead, slavery in the territories became the symbolic or surrogate question upon which was focused a much wider range of more difficult but less well-defined problems separating the North and the South. The abortion debates of the late 60s had much of the same ring to them. They were especially intense because they turned not on the specific issue alone, important as it was, but also on a much wider range of more difficult but less well-defined problems separating those who welcomed the cultural revolutions of the 60s or were willing to try to accommodate them, and those who defended traditional virtues or the virtues of traditionalism on the other. So for many Iowans, abortion came to be the great symbolic or surrogate issue of the 60s and early 70s. Upon it, they focused a host of related misgivings about the general direction of society. Legal abortion was a first step to larger moral corruption, and the entire state was on the brink of becoming a tainted, shamed land. (laughs) In a decade when co-ed dormitories are already starting, some envisioned... At least hyperbolically, (laughs) (laughs) sexual relations will be taking place on the street corners. (laughs) All right, here's a fun little detail, too. A surprisingly large number of older people feared that abortion would lead to other forms of social killing and that they would become the next (laughs) logical victims. Death panels. Yes. Phoebe Stewart of Des Moines saw the next move as mercy killing of the aged, sick, deformed, and mentally ill. What assurances do we have that we will not fall into one of the other categories? You may be signing your own death warrant (laughs) if you approve the liberal abortion bill. I love this. (laughs) I know. Uh, So many old people were so scared. (laughs) 
Um, Opinion polls in Iowa during the late 60s and early 70s consistently indicated that liberalized abortion was more likely to be opposed by the elderly than the young, the poor than the wealthy, and the least well-educated than those with solid schooling. Put differently, this suggests strongly that those least confident of their abilities to adapt to revolutionary change in the basic fabric of society, the vulnerable, the poor, and the poorly prepared were the groups most skeptical about abortion reform. Something else that Professor Moore notes is that by 1967, he just cites a bunch of polls that say most Iowans generally are in favor of it. So there was a poll in 67 that said like 68% of the state citizens favor liberalization of the laws and 21% oppose them. Um, And then the last thing I just wanted to leave us on, Roe v. Wade is the decision is announced. And two days later, the author of that decision, Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackmun, came to Iowa to address the Cedar Rapids Marion Area Chamber of Commerce for some reason. And he, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. He was greeted that night by 51 anti-abortion demonstrators outside the meeting place. Later in his career, he would become inured to such treatment, but their presence clearly bothered him less than 48 (laughs) hours after the decision. He devoted most of his speech to a canned history of the Supreme Court and how it worked, but turned at the end of his talk with seeming anguish, according to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, to the abortion question. He expressed a deep frustration, for he had known all along that the members of the court would be excoriated from one end of the country to the other, regardless of how they decided. He really resented (laughs) that evening in Cedar Rapids, (laughs) the bitter nights the issue had already given him and the many more he knew would follow. Indirectly, at least, he blamed the nation's state legislatures for their unwillingness or inability to face up to abortion as a separate issue the way they faced other issues. I just love that anecdote that I love that he, too. He landed in Iowa after writing the decision to legalize abortion at the federal level. And I mean, in later years, he would get used to it, but it's pretty raw at this point. And just how salty he is at legislatures like the one in Iowa that just couldn't get their shit together because <laughs> this issue just meant too much. It was too complex. <laughs> so they made him do it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> so as I noted, I think a little bit earlier, there's not a ton of reliable data before Roe v. Wade around how many abortions were taking place in Iowa. But after it was legalized, the data becomes a little bit more solid. And in 1974, when it was legalized, the abortion rate was about 10% of pregnancies annually. You can look up this, this kind of data and see which years the abortion rate and pregnancy rates increased, but um, kind of peaked at 16% of pregnancies annually in 1984. Very Orwellian, if you will. <laughs> um, and it's it's uh, at about 6% today. I, I haven't seen um, more, the more recent data around how COVID affected it, but I would assume that it went up a little bit because of all of the societal and uh, financial and health-related uh, <laughs> problems. Yeah, so that brings us up to the current era, the post-Roe v. Wade, where all of our problems have been solved. Uh, we've achieved true equality and uh, reproductive freedom and autonomy. 